The first lesson is from Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame one leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down the grass shall become reeds and rushes and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand. A second reading is taken from several verses in the book of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold... A door open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, And the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. We remain standing. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way. There be far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Last week, we began a series on the richness of embodied worship, exploring how worship is meant to restore us, to restory us, to help us put aside the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, to put aside the stories our culture tells us about us, that we might immerse ourselves in a glorious biblical narrative of who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. And in that story, we find ourselves beautifully created in the image of God, in Jesus loved and delighted in, in Christ restored to our created purpose to reflect God's glory and enact God's good, loving care of his creation. But last week, we left the story unfinished. I mean, we might know who we are and where we've come from, but where are we going? Where is God's story leading? What is the culmination of the glorious biblical narrative that worship restores, restores us in? Well, for many of us, we will give the answer as heaven. Heaven is the end, the goal, eternal life, an eternity spent in the presence of God, a spiritual, ethereal existence. What will that be like? Well, we're not quite sure. But we wonder who might be there. We wonder what about the family pets. We wonder what we might do. And the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial fills in some of the gaps. A harp in one hand and a toasted bagel with cream cheese in the other. So heaven must be about worship, right? I remember uh, our family as kids were, became friends with a local Wesleyan pastor. Their daughters were about the same age as my brother and I. And near the end of primary school, they left Powassan, and he took a charge uh, of a church in Maine, and we soon after went down to visit them. And we visited them on a Sunday, and so I joined the youth program, and the youth program was studying the book of Revelation. It's quite a curriculum for uh, students, right? 
And I seem to remember that they were studying the passage that Cliff just read for us, where John is on the island of Patmos. He's been imprisoned there, and on the, the Lord's Day, he's caught up into a vision of heaven, and he's drawn into heavenly worship, hearing all of these songs sung before the throne. And at that point, the youth leader was getting incredibly excited. Isn't this an awesome picture, she said, of what is in store for us? For all eternity, we get to sing hymns. Now, I'm, I'm 12. <laughs> like, one hymn is nails on a chalkboard. An eternity of hymns? Doesn't sound all that heavenly to me, right? Rather hellish. <laughs> so is our worship now preparing us for an eternal worship service in the sky? <laughs> no. Not at all. (laughs) Something far more glorious. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that worship will be central to our future. For how can we be in the presence of the living God and not worship? But I think part of our problem is that we equate worship with singing. And worship is meant to grab a hold of the totality of human life, of work, relationships, learning, exploring, playing, creating. No. No, in Revelation, John is drawn up into heavenly worship for a purpose. To be shown what will take place. To have the future revealed to him. And what is that future? Where is God's story leading? Where are we going? Well, Revelation 21 provides the answer. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, beautifully prepared as a bride for her husband, the God of heaven dwelling upon the earth, surrounded by a renewed cosmos, surrounded by a renewed human community. In other words, our future is heaven and earth becoming one. Now that sounds rather obtuse, right? I mean, what does that even mean? Let me put it this way. When the Jews went to the temple, what were they doing? Often we think of the temple like it was just a big church, right? And so they went there to worship, to pray, to sing, to celebrate the feasts, to remember God's activity in their midst. Well, yes, it is that, but for the Jew, it was far more than that. See, for the Jew, the temple was the meeting place of heaven and earth. When you went into the temple... You were not only on the earth, you were in heaven. Now, we may have some concept of how that works when we go to the airport, right? You're, you're flying to the U.S., and sometimes you go through U.S. immigration and customs before you board the plane to go. And so you can be said to be in the U.S. at the same time that you're at an airport in Canada. You're in the States, and you're in Canada. For the Jew, being in the temple meant you were on the earth and in heaven. Now, Jesus comes into this worldview and he says, I'm the temple, meaning I'm the meeting place between heaven and earth. And throughout his life, he illustrated what heaven and earth coming together would look like, what the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of heaven would look like. It would be the blind seeing, the lame walking, 
evil bound and cast out, the unclean cleansed and welcomed in, racial divisions healed as Samaritan and Jew come together to worship. So all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said, was illustrating what heaven and earth coming together would look like, the future that Jesus was bringing would look like. So what am I saying? Am I saying that how we envision heaven isn't our future? That such a concept is completely unbiblical? Well, not fully. I think it's more that we have put the emphasis on the wrong thing. We put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. You might remember that when Jesus was on the cross, he turned to the thief. And in light of the thief's profession of faith in Jesus, he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And we often interpret that as Jesus saying to the thief, today you and I are going to be in heaven together. But that word paradise meant rest place, a place you might stop to rest on a long journey to somewhere else. How we've often imagined heaven then is simply a rest place along the way to our true future, the coming together of heaven and earth. Now, a few years ago, I was was trying to wrap my mind around that as it was upending some of my deeply held convictions. And at the same time, as a family, we were exploring options of what we might want to do for a family vacation. Now, I'd spent six summers through university tree planting in northern British Columbia, and I just fell in love with that province. The sea, the sky, the mountains, the landscapes teeming with life and rugged beauty. And I wanted to share that love, that joy, with the rest of the family. And so we began to kind of rough out the details of what a West Coast trip might look like. We were going to drive 10 to 12 hours a day so that we could get there quickly enough that we could linger. Now, let's say one of the rest stops along the way was a motel just outside of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Now, the real goal of our family vacation was the glory of the Rockies, the cathedral groves of Vancouver Island, the the captivating Pacific coastline. But along the way, there would be this rest stop, this motel outside of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. The real goal of the biblical story is heaven and earth coming together as one. Our world shot through with the love, beauty, grace, and justice of the living God. But along that way, on the way to that future, would be paradise. This rest place. This place of waiting before the renewal of all things. Somewhere along the line of Christian history and understanding... We made the temporary rest stop, the motel outside of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, the goal, the end, the terminus of the journey. Oh, no matter how awesome that motel is, it can't hold a candle to the glories of the West Coast. No matter how amazing that rest stop, paradise, it can't hold a candle to the glories of new creation, heaven and earth coming together as one. And worship is meant to restore us, to restore us. 
So how then does our worship restore us to where we're ultimately going? The coming together of heaven and earth. Well, in his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie Smith points out that every liturgy, every worship service, is ordered toward a telos, a goal, an end, an implicit vision of flourishing that is loaded into its rituals. And we're formed by them to become the kinds of people that pursue, that desire that end. He gives an example. He says, we're immersed in a culture with liturgies of consumerism. And we will learn by them over time that the end goal of human life is acquisition and consumption. What is the chief end of humanity, the consumerist catechism asks? And the answer is to acquire stuff with the illusion that we can enjoy it forever. The telos, the end, the goal of Christian worship, is heaven and earth coming together. God renewing us, renewing the entire cosmos. And that telos, that end, that goal is loaded into our rituals to form us, to be the kinds of people that pursue, that desire that end. Now some of us here at Little T have come from orthodox traditions where that orientation is built into the very architecture of your worship spaces. The worship space is often divided by a screen. Earth is on one side of the screen. Heaven is on the other. Earth is where the worshipers sit. On the other side is heaven, beautifully captured in artistic grandeur. The worshipers look through that screen to heaven, and from behind that screen comes the gospel. The good news comes from heaven to earth. From behind that screen comes the sacrament. The foretaste of heaven come to earth. All of worship then is anticipating God bringing together heaven and earth. Now although that goal, that end, is not explicit in the architecture of our space, it's loaded into other habits and rituals and patterns beginning with the very day that we worship. A Sunday and not a Saturday. I think we get so used to worshiping on a Sunday that we forget how radical a shift that was. For a time, I had family members who were Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, One summer, we were driving to Florida and we stopped to see them in North Carolina. It was a Saturday, their day of worship, of rest. We spent the day with them, and I asked over the course of the day, because it was an incredible experience to worship with them, why is it that you worship Jesus on a Saturday instead of a Sunday? Well, apparently they were at one part, part of a Christian movement that held on to a prophecy that Jesus was to return in 1843 or 1844. Well, those years came and went, no Jesus. Some disillusioned left the movement, but the others reinterpreted it. and said Jesus didn't return because his people no longer honor the Sabbath. We had no biblical justification for changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, and so they returned to what was prescribed in Genesis. Now, what up until that point had been a given for me, I now saw as a revision. 
So why did we move our day of rest, of worship, from a Saturday to a Sunday? We moved it because of Jesus' resurrection. In it, Jesus becomes the firstborn of a new creation, guaranteeing that future coming together of heaven and earth, guaranteeing Sabbath rest for the entire cosmos. And so Christians reoriented their worship toward that future. And each worship service is meant then to be a mini-Easter. As we celebrate, as N.T. Wright puts it, God doing for the entire cosmos what he did for Jesus at Easter. Such an orientation is not only loaded into the day we worship, it's loaded into how we worship with the centrality of a particular prayer, the Lord's Prayer. You see, in the 16th century, when Thomas Cranmer put together the Book of Common Prayer that guides many of our services at Little T, as he moved into the Lord's Prayer, he introduced it with these words. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Bold to pray. And indeed, it is a bold prayer, right from the beginning. For we are invited, through Jesus, to call Almighty Living God, Father. But it's also bold in that every single verb in the prayer is in the imperative. They're not requests, they're commands. Bring your kingdom, forgive us, do your will. It's bold, right? To come as creature before creator with a command. But they're in the passive imperative. No less bold, but meaning that in that prayer, we're commanding the only one who can bring it about. Bring your kingdom, Lord, for you're the only one who can do it. Forgive us, Lord, for you're the only one who can do it. It is pushing back against that unbiblical view that we are responsible To bring in the kingdom. No. We don't bring in the kingdom for God. God brings in the kingdom for us. So we pray boldly for God's kingdom to come. We pray into injustice. Bring your justice. We pray into the darkness. Bring your light. We pray into despair. Bring your hope. We pray into fear and anxiety. Bring your peace. We pray into illness. Bring your healing. We pray into hatred. Bring your love. This prayer orients us to that future. Bring your kingdom, Lord. Bring your rule. Bring heaven and earth together. In his book on the Lord's Prayer, Daryl Johnson shares how being formed in the habits of this prayer form us, shape us to pursue, to desire that end. In a four-year period in the 1980s, he and his family lived in the Philippines. And he said you could feel the tension everywhere. Ferdinand Marcos, the corrupt dictator, was tightening his grip on the country. People who spoke out against the injustice were disappearing or discovered murdered. All over the city of Manila, believers were praying urgently, boldly. Bring your kingdom, Lord. In February of 1986, they witnessed revolution. 
A regime change took place without military intervention. Johnson and others attribute it to prayer, bold prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, bring heaven and earth together as one. We are restoried toward this end, not only in our prayer, but in the sacrament that we'll celebrate in just a few moments. And the Lord's Supper not only looks back, it also looks forward. As we heard in our Isaiah 25 reading, that future is likened to a feast of bountiful food, a feast of finely aged wine. In the book of Revelation, that future is spoken of as a wedding banquet. The Lord's Supper, then, is meant to be a foretaste of that wedding feast, the consummation of all things, the marriage of heaven and earth. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry wrote in The Little Prince, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Our worship is intended to form us as a people who long for the grandeur of new creation a grandeur that is beyond our wildest dreams, beyond all possible comprehension. And the biblical passages that point toward this future are deeply poetic, evocative, earthy. As in our Isaiah 35 reading, as Isaiah says, it is like streams that flow through a dry, arid desert, and it blossoms with life and beauty. It is like the mute singing for joy, the lame man leaping like a deer. With such imagery, our imagination is animated, hope is birthed, and we begin to yearn, to long for, to desire, to pursue that end. I can't reflect on the imagery of Isaiah 35 without remembering Israel Newell. He would sit up right here a man who had called Little Trinity home for some 46 years. He died just before the pandemic in 2019. In his youth, Israel had undergone a course of treatment for arthritis. That treatment had left him physically frail, his growth arrested, his body twisted, bound to a wheelchair. A few days before he died, I went to the hospital to see him and to pray with him. And as I prayed with him, the imagery of Isaiah's new creation was threaded through my prayer. And one particular line of it came up to the surface. The lame man will leap like a deer. I remember when I finished praying, I kind of knelt down beside him and whispered in his ear. I said, Israel, I long to see you in glory. For when you see Jesus face to face, you'll be transformed into his likeness, be freed, and leap like a deer. As I left, I kind of felt awkward having said it. I thought, that's kind of a dumb thing to say to a man on his deathbed. Later that week, I was planning the funeral service with Israel's wife, Lenore. And we're trying to find the right passages to read for the service. And she asked, what's that passage about but the lame man leaping like a deer? 
I smiled. I said, that's Isaiah 35. This is the last passage I prayed and we spoke of before he died. Lenore had Israel's Bible with her. And she pulled it out and it was a mess born of use. Pages were falling out. The binding was broken. It was held together with elastics. And she opened it up to Isaiah 35 and it was underlined and highlighted. There was notes and symbols everywhere. It was a text clearly that Israel had spent a whole lot of time with. It seemed it had animated his hope, his yearning. When heaven and earth meet, I, Israel, will be freed from the confines of this chair and leap like a deer. This week, as I began to reflect on that moment, I I wondered if it was the same hope that animated his work for justice. For Israel had received the order of the Diocese of Toronto, recognizing his contributions to social justice within our city, a work that was animated by imagining what heaven and earth coming together would look like, justice flowing. Israel's life confirmed what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Our worship is meant to restore us, to restory us, to restory us to where we're ultimately going, the coming together of heaven and earth, that end, that goal, that telos is loaded into our habits and our rituals. It is evoked imaginatively in the art, the music, the poetic liturgy that flows through our services, leading us to yearn, to long for, to pursue, to desire that end. It was theologian, Stanley Hauerwas, who said in an interview, Christians are embedded in a whole set of revolutionary, subversive practices while failing to notice their significance. Simply to say that Christians are those who always go to church on Sundays may be a more significant practice than we know. Are there things Christians should not do on a Sunday? Well, that question has been lost we think it needs to be found again. In a world where work is integral to worth, where the majority of our neighbors see Sunday morning as a time to go to the lake or mow the grass, just getting up, getting dressed, going to church becomes a form of nonviolent protest, a way of saying, we want a different world. And what would it look like for us to come to church thinking of ourselves as being a part of nonviolent protest? We want a different world. So let us be formed, restored, restoried by our worship to become a people who pursue, desire, yearn for a different world. The coming together of heaven and earth for our worship is directed toward the one who sits on the throne who says, Behold, I am making everything new. Behold, I am making everything new. Amen? Amen.
You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.